0: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders should be advised that the following contains the names of those who have passed away. Well, it's that time of the year. The days are getting longer and warmer. The heat and humidity is just beginning to culminate in the first of the electrical afternoon thunderstorms. The whales are migrating south again, mothers now accompanied by their calves and the jacaranda trees are in full bloom, splashing purple bursts all across the city. Beach numbers are swelling, bushwalking is becoming popular again, but now you have to be more careful because the snakes are coming out of hibernation. And fruit bats flutter across a crimson sky, turned red from the last of the controlled blazes as bushfire season begins to set in. Okay, it's not really the time for ghosts and ghoulies and the such. This colour scheme right now isn't so much black, grey and orange as it is blue, green and purple. So it's always a little bit jarring to see the autumn themed Halloween so clumsily transplanted down here. We don't have that pagan traditionalism from Europe or the legacy of the hysterical witch hunts that went down in the US. We're not really a Halloween country, regardless of how much the retail industry is trying to shove it down our throats. Yeah, it is getting more popular in recent years, and there's plenty of adult themed Halloween parties, and I even did see some trick-or-treaters. But generally, a lot of people haven't really gotten into it, probably because of how Americanized and forced the whole thing seems to be. But the funny thing is that our aversion to Halloween hasn't really translated into aversion to ghost stories in general. We tend to like them as much as any other nation, and there are, in fact, a few very famous ghosts all across the country. So, what the hell? In the spirit of the season, I'm going to talk about three of the most well-known hauntings in Australia. The concept of a spiritual other side is not in any way, shape or form a new idea. Indigenous Australians all across the country have had their own stories of otherworldly entities, stories that can span tens of thousands of years being told right alongside the most recent stories of personal encounters. If this interests you in any way, I highly recommend watching The Dark Side, a film directed by Warwick Thornton, which addresses this way, way, way better than I ever could. The most well-known Aboriginal ghost is found up in far north Queensland at a town located 60 kilometres south of Cairns called Babinda, which is an anglicised version of the traditional name Banabinda. It is surrounded by thick, almost untouched rainforest that attracts tourists all year round, particularly to a place just outside of town known as the Babinda Boulders, an exquisite rock pool formation that has crystal clear water weaving through it water that always seems to be deeply inviting in the hot, humid weather of the north. However, if you go there, you will see multiple signs warning people not to swim in certain areas. While this part of the rock formation has no official name, as it is considered to all just be part of the Babinda boulders, the white locals have taken to calling it the Devil's Pool. And it all has to do with a woman called Ulana, The story comes from the Yidindi people. It's said that Ulana was a very beautiful young woman who was married to a very respectable elder called Warunu, who was much older than her. The marriage may have been a formal one, but it was by no accounts an unhappy one, and for many years the two lived together quite harmoniously. Then a wandering tribe came into the valley, and with them was Daiga. Gaiga was a very handsome young man, and it said from the moment that he and Ulana saw each other, they fell in love. They took to meeting each other secretly, and eventually, knowing that what they were doing would never be permitted, decided to run away together. They journeyed far along the base of the valley before they veered and started towards the mountain, Churichilam. It was at the foot that they stopped to rest, near the edge of a simple little stream but it was also here that the two tribes, united by their anger at the two lovers, found them. Daiga was the first to be captured by his own tribe, and as they were wanderers, they declared that they should never again return to the valley as they dragged him away. Then the Yudingis found Ulana still by the creek. There was a struggle before she managed to break away and fling herself into the water, crying out for Daiga to come back to her, as she did not know that he had been taken away at this point. When he didn't return for her, She let loose a terrible cry of anguish and sorrow, and all around her there was a sudden upheaval of the very earth itself. The tribe was shocked to see massive boulders spring up from the ground as the creek became twisted around this new formation and split into three different forms. And as the earth shook, Lana disappeared into it and many believe that she became part of those stones and is still there today and will always be there, forever calling for her lost love to return. Now, this might have just been a local story, known only to a few, if it wasn't for those tourists. The story of Ulana started gaining state, national, and even international attention over the last 70 years or so, because the rise in the number of visitors has also correlated with the rise in the number of deaths. Since 1959, there have been 17 fatalities at the Devil's Pool, and 16 of those have been young men. It's said that Ulana is still there waiting for her lover and drowning any young man who disrespects her resting place and decides to go for a swim. There is, of course, a non-supernatural explanation. It's a dangerous place to swim. The creek isn't all calm green pools and it's prone to flash flooding. And there are lots of sections where the water is churned up and white. There's even a section further down the line that's called the washing machine, just to give you some idea of what the water looks like. The last fatality happened in 2010. 23-year-old Tasmanian James Bennett had been swimming in a calm area nearby when witnesses said he was suddenly and violently yanked back as if by an invisible hand, which seemed to be dragging him back towards the section of churning white water. He was seen to struggle for a moment before his head went under, Yet his arms were still at surface level, struggling to pull himself up. Even though his friends tried to help him, he was soon swept away, and his body was not recovered until three days later. And I personally remember this as I was living around the area at the time it happened. And I remember the local reaction was one of exhausted grief. This was a well-known, dangerous place. There are signs everywhere telling people not to go in. People have been warning about it for decades, people have known it about for centuries, yet there are those that still think they know better, who still believe that they're not going to be cowed by superstition, who are willing to take the risk. Don't. Don't go bushwalking without telling someone where you're going, don't pick up cone shells, don't try to feed the cassowaries, and don't go swimming in a place that's called the Devil's Pool because here's the thing, it's always been strangers to the area who have died, and they've always been white. The Yadindi people have known about this spirit that resides there, but they have never been afraid, just respectful. The visitors, not so much. And now there seems to be more spirits to be found in the area around the pool. Just after the last fatality, the father of the victim visited the area to grieve and pay his respects. He took a photograph, and when he got it developed a day later, he was stunned to see the image of his dead son appear. So, are there now more restless spirits inhabiting this area? At any rate, much of it now has been closed off, and the new plaque now stands next to all those warning signs, simply reading, he came for a visit and stayed forever. Now, from the rural to the urban. Campbelltown is a southwestern suburb of Sydney that hosts the closest thing that we have to an Australian Halloween, the Fishers Ghost Festival. It's actually a fun field event that runs for 10 days, from late October to early November, and has everything from arts and crafts, talent shows, street parades, fun games, and even a fun run. It's very strange to think that all this started because of a murder. It all happened way back in 1826, and is centred around a man by the name of Frederick George James Fisher. Fred Fisher was, as many were in the early 1800s, a convict, transported for the term of 14 years for passing forged banknotes. Now this was one of the deeply unfair crimes that could get you, because it carried a heavy sentence, yet it was almost impossible for someone to prove their innocence. It's very likely that a whole host of people that were transported for passing forged notes had received them elsewhere and were unaware that they were carrying a forgery. But, in the eyes of the law, that didn't matter, and they were often sent to Australia, regardless of their guilt. He arrived in Sydney on the 16th of September, 1816, but Fred, at least, had a vital skill that helped set him up. Being the son of bookbinders, he was literate, and that was something that was desperately needed in the colony at the time. So, instead of being subjected to the brutal work of road building, or being pulled from farm to farm for the freemen, Fred eventually ended up in a pretty decent role of administration. He doesn't appear in the records again until 1822 when he applied for, and was granted, a ticket of leave. Now, this was something that well-behaved convicts could do. A ticket of leave meant that a convict could now work for himself and not a master, but they also couldn't leave a specific area and had to report to authorities regularly, and any misbehavior would see them sent straight back to convict status. With his ticket, Fred went out to Campbelltown, which was, at the time, a rural outpost 50 kilometres from Sydney Town, and there he flourished. By 1825, at the age of 33, Fred Fisher now owned four farms and had stone buildings on those properties that was worth over £800. Pounds. And this was after he stole it from the Delaware people, of course. It was in 1825, though, that things started going sour for Fred. He had decided to expand out of farming and founded the Horse and Jockey Inn, which was built for him by a man called William Brooker. One night, during a heated argument with Brooker over money owed, a fight broke out between the two men and Fred pulled a knife in self-defense. William wasn't badly hurt, but Fred was arrested for the assault and being on a ticket of leave, he feared for his future. Worried that he might have to face a long sentence, Fred turned to his friend, George Worrell and asked him to act as his agent and to have the power of attorney over his possessions and manage his affairs while he was in prison. Fred and George were neighbours, and they had been mates for a long time. But that didn't stop George from revelling in his friend's misfortune. With Fred away, George went from a very modest living to being in control of some of the most profitable land in the district, and it was reported that George was heard to boast that it's all mine now, all that was Fred's. He gave it to me afore he went to prison. But Fred wasn't away very long. The court ruled that he had acted in self-defense and therefore decided that a 50 pound fine and six months in jail would be punishment enough. Fred returned to the district in 1826 and slipped back into his normal life, much to George's dismay. You see, George had no idea that Fred would be back so soon and had become quite accustomed to the idea that all the land he was minding, he actually owned. It pained him to relinquish it. Then, on the 17th of June, 1826, Fred Fisher vanished. George announced that Fred had gone back to England and had, as before, left all his belongings in George's possession. George then immediately went about selling Fred's things. This led to some pretty valid suspicions, and on the 17th of September, 1826, George Worrell was arrested on the suspicion of Fred's murder. He denied everything and pointed the finger at four other men who were arrested and questioned, but ultimately released, as was George himself, as there was no evidence. On September the 22nd, a reward of £20 was offered for the discovery of Fred's body, yet that impressive reward gave no new leads. Then, four months after Fred's disappearance, something very odd happened to a farmer by the name of John Farley. Late one night in mid-October, John Farley was walking home from the pub when he passed by one of Fred's paddocks, which happened to border on George's farm. Part of the border was a little creek, which had a modest bridge just across it. As George approached the bridge, he saw a figure sitting on the rails, looking away from him. As he got closer, he recognised this figure to be none other than Fred Fisher, the man who had been missing for four months. But as John made to call out, he froze. There was something wrong about Fred. He seemed to be bathed in an eerie light that glowed around him and as he slowly turned around, John was horrified to see that he had blood dripping from a deep wound on his head. Fred stared intently at John for a moment before he raised an arm and pointed at the creek that ran past George Worrell's farm. He held that position, still staring at John, before he slowly faded away. John, for his part, reacted how pretty much all of us would. He turned tail and he ran full pelt back to the town, screaming that he had seen the ghost of Fred Fisher. And the investigation was back on. After a few fruitless searches around the creek bed were made, an indigenous tracker by the name of Nummit was brought in from Liverpool. After a close inspection, Nummet declared, "'White fella's fat here,' and he led the party a little further down the creek, where a shallow grave was discovered. The face of the corpse was unrecognisable, but the fancy clothes were known by all. After four months of searching, Fred Fisher had been found. George Worrell was again arrested, but this time he went to trial and was convicted and executed for the murder of Frederick Fisher. At the last moment, George tried to avoid the noose by confessing to the murder, but saying it was an accident. This was all, however, too little, too late. And, as far as I know, this is the only conviction that came about because of a ghost sighting. Excitement around the case faded, and people gradually went back to their daily lives, with one interesting addition. Once a year, one or two of the local kids would dare each other to go by that bridge, which is now aptly known as Fisher's Ghost Bridge, on the off chance that they too might see the bloodied spectre. This was at first a very childish thing to do, but as the years progressed, it became more and more popular until in 1956, on the 130th anniversary of Fisher's appearance, 1,500 people turned out to see the ghost. They didn't see anything, but as fate would have it, this was the same year that the Campbelltown Council was thinking about starting an annual event in the hopes of raising some money for the suburb and starting some kind of tradition. Names were suggested like the Rose Festival, but once they saw how eager and invested the people were still in the Fisher legend 130 years on, the idea was changed. In 1960, the very first Fisher's Ghost Festival was held, and it's been running ever since. And lastly, down to Melbourne for our most dramatic ghost. Princess Theatre is one of the most beautiful and extravagant buildings in Australia. First opened in 1857, then remodelled in 1886, it continues to host some of the most celebrated productions in the world and the building itself is listed on the National Trust of Australia. It's so incredible that there's someone there who just can't leave. Yep. Princess Theatre has its very own residential ghost, a former baritone opera singer who walked those very planks over a century ago by the name of Frederick Fredericki. That was his stage name. He was born Frederick Baker in Florence, Italy in 1855, but he moved with his family to Britain as a youth and for a while there, he trained to enter into the diplomatic services. But at the age of 23, he decided a more glamorous life awaited him, so he chucked in his old life and began to train as an opera singer, changing his bland English surname of Baker to the more flamboyant Frederici in the process. And he was very successful, enjoying a good run at the London's Theatre Royal on Drury Lane, and was even in the very first British performance of the Pirates of Penzance as the Pirate King. It was during this time he married fellow artist, Lena Monmouth, whose real name was Jane Eleanor Finelli, so they had that in common, and the couple had two children. Now critically acclaimed and in popular demand, Frederiki began his international tour. He performed in the first American production of Mikado in the lead role in 1885 before going on to tour around Austria and Germany. Then in 1887, he and his family journeyed all the way to Australia, which was at the time considered almost an untapped market that was hungry for European operas. Here, Frederiki found stellar success in his new home of Melbourne at the freshly refurnished Princess Theatre. Over the following year, he would play a multitude of roles to glowing reviews. But it was his final role, on the 3rd of March 1888 that he would be the most remembered for. It was the premiere performance of Gounod's Faust, and Frederici was playing the role of Mistopheles, The Devil. In the last act, Mistopheles descends down to hell, and the most modern Princess Theatre had a handy trapdoor on the stage that would allow the actors to quickly disappear from view. As the music rose to a crescendo and Frederiki in full devil's costume was lowered out of sight, most missed what happened right at the very end. Just as Frederiki disappeared from view, he was seen by his fellow castmates to fall to his knees, keel over and clutch at the boards. By the time the crew reached him underneath the stage, he was already gone, dead from a massive heart attack at the age of 37. As theatre-goers began to seep out into the foyer after the performance, the manager was there to meet them and to explain the absence of the lead actor from the final bow. But as he did, this was met with an outcry. Not because of the shocking news of Frederiki's death, but because everyone claimed that they had seen him on the stage with the rest of the cast, taking his final bow. Many thought that this was some kind of sick joke and weren't convinced of the seriousness of the matter until it was reported in the newspapers the next day. Even the cast was stunned by the news as they too were adamant that Frederiki had been there with them, smiling and bowing as if nothing was wrong. And the sightings haven't stopped since. There are too many to count, though all agree that Frederiki is hardly a malevolent presence. He appears, usually, as a well-dressed man in stylish, though somewhat dated clothes, and many times he's so innocuous that it takes someone a while to even notice him. He's been seen all over, and seems almost to have taken on some sort of responsibility for the theatre, particularly the performers. One singer once reported that while she was practising in the empty theatre, a single person was heard to applaud her once she was done. Others say that they have spoken to a well-dressed man who they thought was an extra, only to have that person vanish right in front of them. But the most common place where he's likely to be seen is in the dress circle, watching the performances. He has become the Prince's Theatre's most respected critic. Many believe that they've seen him reacting to shows, sometimes frowning, sometimes unimpressed, sometimes smiling and nodding. It's now believed that if he is spotted on an opening night, that that will mean a good run for the production. If he misses it, not so much. The theater even reserved a seat for Frederiki in the dress circle, and for over a century had at least one empty spot for the residential ghost. That, however, has changed in recent years. The decision to start selling the seat came as a surprise to most after such a long tradition, but the theatre managers these days shun the superstition to bow to a more impressive force, money. They have gotta sell the seat to make a bit of cash, but this has actually led to an interesting development to the tale. People who take Frederiki's spot in the dress circle now report that, usually pretty early on in the first act, They will feel someone tap them politely on the shoulder before a low, well-refined English voice whispers in their ear, excuse me, but I do believe you're in my seat. Everyone likes a good ghost story, regardless of whether or not you're a believer. I believe the longevity of these particular tales has nothing to do with the supernatural element, and it's more about the personalities of these three people who may or may not have been left behind. These are not your average souls wandering around in fixed patterns. They are fully rounded individuals who are more often than not talked about as if they were still here and living. Whether it's the sad, deadly Ulana, who continues to search for her dagger, or Fred Fisher, who was able to come back from the grave to avenge his own murder, or Frederiki, the benevolent spirit who still wanders through the vibrant world of theatre that he loved so much. All these people and their stories continue to be told again and again, years after they have long passed away. And in many ways, perhaps that's all a ghost really is. Someone who we, the living, just won't let go of. And as long as we keep telling these stories, they won't ever really die.